Well, it's great to see everyone. Thanks for being here. We're beginning a brand new series today, and uh, we're, we're excited to get that launch that's called Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Genius Encounters with Jesus. I don't even know the name of our series, but, and uh, what we're looking at is the genius of Jesus through the encounters that he had with people, and I think that'll be helpful to us. Just an update, uh, as a lot of you moms know, uh, there's a bunch of our young guys, young boys out at a camp out uh, with their dads, and it's raining like it always rains when we do these camp outs every year, which is great because it teaches the kids how to have a great time outside in the rain. It's all good. Moms, don't worry. No, no, there's been nothing tragic happened yet. And uh, the kids are having a, a great, great time running around like wild Indians. Everything's good. So uh, just want to update you there. And uh, also, Jeremy, our tech guy, he, he kind of led the charge, the caravan down there. And uh, so he's involved. Did you know that bow season started, hunting season? And uh, Jeremy actually got the first, his first deer, unfortunately, with his vehicle. And so, uh, but... Uh, and the kids were there for that, so they all love that too. So it, it's just all good. You know, they're, they're getting all kinds of experiences, so just having a great time. As we look at um, a, a certain event in the life of Jesus, it answers, it kind of speaks to some of the most difficult things that we go through in our life. And, and, I'm, and I think maybe the hardest thing that we have to face is maybe the death of someone we love. Uh, there was just a, a tragic accident in our area uh, yesterday where uh, a teenage girl passed away. I think that's some of the toughest things that we ever face in life. And we're going to look at a passage of Scripture where Jesus will give us some insights on, on how to deal with that. Actually, what we're going to find out through this passage is that if we trust, if we place our trust in Christ, He will meet our deepest needs with perfect timing. And there are three reasons that He can do that, that will come out in this passage. One is, he can do that because he is the perfect counselor. Secondly, he can do that because of his perfect nature, which is God-man. We'll explain that. And third, because he teaches us that in this broken world, perfect love only happens with sacrifice, suffering, cost. So we're going to dive in. We're, we're in John chapter 11. And uh, this is the, the story of the late raising of Lazarus from the dead. But before we get to the story, I always like to kind of give you the context. And, and here's the context. We're in sort of the latter part of really toward the end of Jesus' three years of public ministry from when he was 30 to 33 years old. He and the disciples have been in the area of Jerusalem and they ran into a conflict with some of the religious leaders there, and the people tried to stone Jesus. Now they're some distance away, and they get a message 
from a, a small town right, right on the outskirts of Jerusalem. And, and it's from a family that Jesus was very close to. It's from a town called Bethany. And in Bethany lived uh, a brother and two sisters, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. They lived there, and they were very good friends with Jesus. As a matter of fact, when we read about Jesus being in Jerusalem, most of the time he's staying in this little town outside of Jerusalem, this little village, about a little less than two miles away. And that's where he stays the night, and then he comes in and does his teaching in Jerusalem. And they get word from Mary and Martha that Jesus' friend, Lazarus, has died. And so when the disciples hear this, they're kind of expecting a reaction from Jesus. You know, what's going to happen? And they're fearful that he's going to go back there. Actually, I'm sorry, at first they, don't, they only hear that he's sick, not that he died, and they hear that he's sick. And at first the disciples are fearful that he's going to go back there to, to restore Lazarus because they know there's hostilities and it's dangerous and, and they can get killed. But Jesus doesn't go. He actually stays a couple more days where they were at, and then he announces to the disciples that now Lazarus has died. And now he's saying, we're going back there. We're going to Bethany. Which, you know, the disciples are questioning this. And again, if we trust Jesus, he will meet our deepest needs with perfect timing. As he and the disciples interact about that, he actually, because they've got to be wondering, okay, he was sick, we didn't go, because we've seen you heal people from sickness many, many times. Now, a couple days later, he's, he's dead, and now you want to go. Why now? So they're questioning. By the way, they're questioning Jesus' timing, and also the sisters are, when Jesus finally arrives, both of them separately kind of say to Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And so that's how it goes. Jesus meets our deepest needs with perfect timing. Let's pick, pick it up in John chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. And this is where he's been told Lazarus was sick, and now he's telling them that Lazarus has died. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad, here's the timing part, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who's called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. Thomas, real uplifting guy, you know, he, he's always... Always looking at the bright side, Thomas, you know, he's like, let us go so we can just die with him. You know, let's go. Let's go do this thing. But what, what's happening here is Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm glad for your sakes that we didn't go then and we are going now because this is to your benefit. And so they're kind of checking that out and they're kind of getting that. Jesus delays so that he can do an even greater miracle that will impact the disciples and Mary and Martha and a whole bunch of other people in such a way that it will cause them where they will have to respond radically to what happens when he raises them. Now, 
Jesus, if we trust him, can meet, he will meet our needs, our deepest needs, with perfect timing, because first of all, as we said, Jesus is the perfect counselor. Let's pick this up where we left off in verse 17, and maybe you'll see what I'm talking about. When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And when she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and he is calling you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha met him. And then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The exact same thing that Martha said, Mary says. Then Jesus, therefore, saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, and he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. That's the one everybody memorizes when they need to memorize the verse. There it is. Jesus wept. You got it. And, but what I want us to notice is that Jesus comes. He's not even quite to Bethany yet. Martha hears they have a bunch of people from Jerusalem who have come to share their grief, to console them in their grief. So they've kind of got a packed house at Mary and Martha's. And then Martha hears that Jesus is coming. So she goes out and meets him even before he gets to the little village. And what I want you to see is even though both sisters say the exact same thing to Jesus, he deals with them completely different in a completely different way, deals with them completely differently because he is the perfect counselor. Martha says, Lord, again, questioning his timing, she says, Lord, if you had been here, kind of like you're too late, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Jesus get, starts getting into a little bit of a theological discussion with Martha. Um, says he will rise again. And she goes, well, yeah, I know. You know, in the future, there's going to be that resurrection, but I'm talking about right now. And then Jesus makes this big statement, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. And do you believe this? And she confesses her faith. And 
And it's like with Martha, he is talking to her. It's all about truth. And now here's the thing about counseling. And none of us here are perfect counselors. But as believers, we, we talk to our friends, we interact with people, especially when people are going through hard times. And that maybe the hardest of those times is loss of a loved one. And so we want to interact with them, and, and, but one of the things we want to do is always point them to truth. Because when Jesus points Martha to truth, it's also pointing her to hope. Truth and hope is what Jesus does. And he does that in kind of a theological discussion. And he does that out of love for her. And really, that's the balance. Whenever we want to interact with people and help them as a believer, we're, we're always kind of balancing love and truth. Love and truth. As a matter of fact, and this kind of goes further than just counseling, I have a little saying that I, I remind the staff of a lot, that when I'm challenging us on how we interact with people, and, and it goes like this. Love first, lead second, always do both. So love first, and, and then they know what that means. Love first, we always, when we interact with people, we want to love first. Lead second, lead means point them to truth, point them to God. Uh, when they're thinking wrongly, that we're gently correcting them back to truth, because it's truth where our hope is. And so love first, lead second, point them the truth, but always do both. And, and the reason I say that is we should never love at the expense of truth. So sometimes when people are in their grief, they say some things that aren't true. Um, and, and you hear this all the time, and you hear it at funerals and stuff. Well, this person, you know, is now an angel, and that, well, that's not true. And, and I'm not saying you, you always point that out, but to believers, you want to make sure that you're always pointing them to what's true, because there's more hope in the truth than what, what they're thinking that's not true. For believers, that is always true. And so, love first, lead second, always do both. Now, notice he then, so Martha talks to Jesus. She goes back to the house. The house is packed. Tells Mary, Mary, hey, Jesus wants to talk to you. Mary heads out. The people that are there grieving with Mary, they think she's heading to the tomb, so they all follow her. She's trying to kind of connect with Jesus, maybe a little more privately, and the disciples, but, they, but there's a crowd along. So she comes, she falls at her feet, and she basically says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, kind of the too late thing again, the timing issue. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She, Mary says the same exact thing that Martha says, but Jesus doesn't correct Mary. He, he doesn't get into a theological discussion. With Mary, it's like he just empathizes. He just, we, he just, he enters in to her grief. And so, and that's what we want to do for our friends and loved ones when they're grieving we empathize. We want to enter into their grief. We want to just grieve with them. And then we see this great display of emotion on the part of Jesus as he enters into a grief. And then we see that last part, the shortest verse, he weeps. And he says more about his emotion a little bit later. But he weeps, and that's how he meets her need. Again, always this balance between truth and love. But here, he just loves her. He's just with her. 
Because Jesus, as the perfect counselor, knows exactly what everyone needs and exactly how to balance truth and love. Now, she will also get truth, but rather than get that from a theological conversation, she'll receive truth by what Jesus does. See how that is? So, how does Jesus meet our deepest needs with perfect timing? First of all, because he's a perfect counselor, he knows what each individual one of us needs. He meets those deepest needs, and he does it when we need it, even though we can't see it. The disciples didn't see it. Why are we going back there now? Martha didn't see it. Now you come. Mary didn't see it. You're too late. But we know by the end of the story, his timing was perfect. So that's, that's one way that he meets our deepest needs with perfect timing. Now, because he's a perfect counselor. Secondly, because of his perfect nature. Jesus uniquely is God and man. We call, theologically, we call this the hypostatic union. And, and here's what it, people get this confused. The Bible's not teaching that Jesus is half man and half God. The Bible is teaching that Jesus is 100% man and 100% God. That he's both. That he, his nature, he has two natures, perfect God and perfect man because he's the only man who didn't sin. So he's perfect God, perfect man, come together in one life, Jesus Christ, his unique and perfect nature. And we see that coming out in, in this whole story. We see it kind of breaking out beginning here in verse 38. Now, when he says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, He's not saying, hey, I, I have the ability to resurrect Lazarus, which I don't even think Martha would doubt that. He's saying something much stronger. He's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying, I am in complete control. I'm the author of, the re- I'm the author of life. And He's saying, I've got it all. I can do it all. I'm over it all. This is a theological... Basically, in this statement, it's a claim to deity. It's a claim to God that he is God. Now, there's, Jesus makes a many much more clear claims to his being God. And that was what was always getting him in trouble with the religious authorities of the day. For example... Uh, he would heal a, a paralyzed man, or, or he'd interact with somebody, and then he kept saying this over and over, your sins are forgiven, right? But everybody's sitting around, they're all going, whoa, 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 you, you can't do that. Because they know, just like we do, if John lies to Fred, only Fred can forgive John. I can't forgive John for lying to Fred, right? Because John didn't do anything to me. If John lies to Fred, only Fred can forgive John. But when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, what he's pointing is he's saying, hey, actually, when John lies to Fred, John is also sinning against God because God said, do not lie. And so when Jesus is saying your sins are forgiven, 
everybody, the crowd, when he says that, they recognize that Jesus is claiming to be deity when he does that. He's claiming to be God, and that's why over and over we see people react when he makes that statement, and they say, well, who can, for, who can forgive sins? Only God in this context, if it wasn't personally against you. And so they're doing this all the time. But it's not just that. In John 5, uh, Jesus is interacting, and he, he claims equality with the Father. And, and because of that, they want to kill him. In John 8, that's the passage where he's in this running argument with religious leaders, and then he sort of ends that argument because they start appealing to, hey, we're God's special people. Hey, we're descended from Abraham. We're, we're the Jewish nation. And then Jesus says, he makes this incredible statement. He says that, that we can kind of miss the significance of. He says, before Abraham was, I am. So, it's an indirect and a direct claim to deity. He's saying, before Abraham was, I was there. And so indirect, he's saying, I, I was around in Abraham's time, even before his time. But more astoundingly, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And as some of you know, I am is the personal name of God. It's what we translate Yahweh. And he's using the personal name of Jehovah to himself. We know this is exactly how the people took that because immediately when he says, before Abraham was, I am, they start stoning him. They, they immediately just, they don't even talk anymore. They've been in this long argument. Talk is over as soon as he says, I am. And they all pick up rocks and they start trying to stone him. They try to kill him. Why? For blasphemy, because they understood exactly what Jesus was saying, and they were right. He was claiming to be God. Later, when one of the disciples, Thomas, the guy that says, oh, let's go, you know, we'll die with him. You know, later, he sees the resurrected Jesus, and what does he say? My God, my Savior. You know, he's saying, my Lord, my God. He is worshiping Jesus as God, and Jesus doesn't correct him. He accepts that without comment. He's like, right. We have to come to this place. We have to wrap our minds around the fact that Jesus is fully man and fully God. That he is unique in all human history. We call it a, a paradox. I mean, think about it. No other religion teaches that the creator and sustainer of the universe became weak and vulnerable and felt the horror of a torture to death for us. Paradox, fully God, fully human. He's implying when he forgives people that all sins are ultimately against him, and that means all of our sins are ultimately against God. This claim that Jesus keeps making throughout his life poses a huge problem for people today as they try to figure out where they stand with Jesus. Because you have to acknowledge that Jesus existed. No, nobody... No serious scholar ever doubts his existence. Why? Because G the life of Jesus changed the entire world. 
I'm not saying who's Christian or not. I'm saying the whole flow of humanity changed. Western civilization deeply impacted by this one man. He claimed to be God. We have that recorded for us in first century eyewitness accounts, several of them, that date back to the first century. There's no lapse there that we can prove that haven't changed. And so the problem is there's a huge temptation in our culture now to just look at Jesus and sort of be okay with Jesus, sort of approve of Jesus, but not acknowledge him as God. And Jesus is not giving us this option. Jesus' claim to deity, it puts us to where we have to respond in one of three ways. If we're going to respond at all, if we're going to interact and deal with that with our minds, there's only three options. We can say that Jesus was lying. But if we do that, he's not a good teacher, so we can't elevate him. For example, if there's another moral teacher who didn't lie about being God, well, then that would be a greater moral teacher than Jesus. So one option, we say that he, he lied. The other option is that he was somehow self-deceived, that he didn't really know. You know, he thought he was, but it just wasn't true. But he wasn't lying because he really thought he was, and, and he's self-deceived. And so we can, or we can take his words as being truthful. Those are really the only three options. So we respond, we have to really respond radically because the claim is so radical when he says, I am God. We can denounce him as a liar, we can write him off as being unbalanced. Or we can worship him. We can, we can only respond in one of these three ways. What we cannot do, what makes no logical sense, is for us to respond in a way that's not radical. It, it's, it makes no sense for us to say something like, well, he was a good moral teacher. He, he had great teachings, a real likable guy. He really started a good movement there. He's not giving us that option, right? That makes no logical sense. He said he was God. He kept saying it. That's why he was ultimately killed, because he, he wouldn't stop saying it. And so we're left with that. But God, Jesus in the flesh, God-man, can deal with us in a way that nobody in history can deal with. He's fully God and fully man. He's fully God in that he tells us exactly the way to God, no, no other. I mean, other religions, the leaders of those religions say, I'm a prophet and I can show you the way to God. But only in Christianity do we have, I'm God and I have come to you. And that's what's happening here. And he came for you. So, if we trust him, God meets our deepest needs with perfect timing. He does that because he's a perfect counselor. And he can do that because of his perfect nature. But he also teaches us something profound. 
and that is perfect love in a broken world always requires suffering. Perfect love in a broken world always requires suffering. Think about it. And maybe the best way to describe love to us, you know, we always say love is action, love is doing, it's more than an emotion, it, it, you, you do love. And probably our best example of selfless love would be love for parents for children, right? Because, you know, kids, especially when they're young, they can't give you a lot of feedback, and so the love tends to be a little more self-sacrificial. But when any couple has a child, you know, they can respond to that child in a couple of different ways. Some couples respond this way. Well, we have a child, and maybe we have more than one, but it's a high value for us to be able to have our freedom and do our own thing and, and have the fun, and our life shouldn't change that much. And so they kind of make some, some boundaries, and then they live to make sure that they can still take all the trips that they want to take, you know, without kids, and they can do this and they can do that, and, and they, they raise their kids as best as they can, sort of once that they get to do everything that they want to do and spend money the way they want it and spend money and spend time the way they want to spend. And, and so some parents kind of do it, they approach parenting that way. This is just a, an addition, but we want to make sure that it, that addition doesn't infringe on any of our rights for a good time. And then what happens? The children suffer, right? The children, well, they don't get great parenting. The parents aren't real involved. They're, they got maybe too much freedom, a little too permissive, you know, and so they're, and, and usually they're the ones without the discipline and, and really the knowledge that it takes to lead a successful life, and they sort of pay. On the other hand, it's like I've lost you guys on that. All right. On the other hand, parenting, parents, Anybody a parent here? Stay with me. All right. Yeah, all right. Because it, this is so foreign to you, you'll like the next one better. See, the other way of parenting is where we change our entire lives to parent. All of a sudden, we're, our lives, although we still have a relationship, it's all about meeting our child's needs. And so the way we spend money, the way we spend our time, the way we do life, whether we take trips or not, it's all based on what's best for our child. We have a responsibility... And so we love, but here's what I'm saying. But that kind of love, which is the love we should give a child, it, it costs something, right? It, it, it's effort. It's suffering, if you will. It's, it's hard work. Our time is not our time. The day never ends. Moms, do you hear me? The day never ends. Yeah, I thought I'd get a few amens. Yeah, the day never ends for mom. You just keep going. And there's always something more you can do, and it never really ends. And so you're just meeting needs, meeting needs, and then you wonder, what happened to my life? Because you've, you've just kind of let it go to raise your kids. But there's always a cost. There's always a sacrifice to be made. Think about it. Here's what's happening in this text. The disciples don't want to go. That's why Thomas is doing that. Well, here we go. Let's go die with him. You know, they don't want to do it because they know there's danger there. They tried to kill Jesus last time. The, he, the, it, the opposition is increasing. We, we talked about that before. And so they're, he, they're coming back and they're like, oh boy, this is it. And, and, it, and it, what, it did lead to it being it. And so they go. But now Jesus is at the tomb 
And he asked where the body is. And this is kind of what's next. We'll, we'll take this on right here um, in verse 38. So then Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. And now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. They, they had a lot of limestone around there. Some of us have seen that. They'd carve out a cave, either kind of down or in the side, and then they would put a rock, a big stone to cover the hole so no animals would go in there. That's where they laid people. They'd use that tomb over and over typically. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I th this is kind of an interesting prayer. Father, he says, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. So he says this prayer, he has perfect faith. He knows this is going to happen, but he says this prayer to the Father, but he does it, and he's basically praying about the people standing around listening to his prayer. And then he says, and when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. So Jesus raises Lazarus. Now, for Jesus to do that right in the backyard of Jerusalem, Jesus is telling the disciples, and he's doing this for Mary and Martha and for all the witnesses that are standing there. He raises Lazarus from the dead, but to bring Lazarus out of the grave, Jesus knows that it's going to require him to go to the grave because this sets in motion that people have to radically respond to Jesus. You have to do something with Jesus. And the people who were there that saw these events take place, they knew, you've got to figure this out. This is too important to just go, ah, well, maybe someday I'll think about that. And so a whole bunch of people from Jerusalem that were there, comforting Mary and Martha, they believe in Jesus because of what he did. They saw it with their own eyes. But some people, even though seeing it with their own eyes, they go back to Jerusalem, talk to the Pharisees, tell them what's happened, and that we find out from the balance of, of the chapter that then the Pharisees decide, we've got to get rid of this guy. He, he's doing these signs, proving that he's the Messiah, but he's undoing our entire religious system, which he did. And as he does it, we've got to stop. If we want to protect our religious system, we've got to stop him. Jesus has to die. And when Jesus rose Lazarus from the grave, it started in motion that last week of his life where finally he was crucified by the people in Jerusalem. 
because Jesus was showing us something. That perfect love in a broken world always requires suffering or a sacrifice or a cost. And really, we know that too. We all have this sense that the world is not the way the world should be. That something's broken with the world when we see tragedies and people doing terrible things and just terrible things happening. So we know the world is broken somehow. But I challenge you to scratch a little deeper, dig a little bit deeper on that, and you'll find that the problem with the world, it just isn't out there. The problem with the world is also in us. That we're all not just capable of evil. We all do things that are wrong, things that God says are wrong. And so you can look at the Ten Commandments or, or, how, or just God's laws or how He tells us to love, and we realize it doesn't take long to realize we have all come up short from that righteous standard. And because of that, that has separated us from a righteous and holy God. But Jesus came to bridge that gap. Jesus came as God-man to die for us, to pay our penalty for sin that a righteous judge would demand that that's just what what justice is that sin is paid for Christ pays for our sin so that we don't have to because the penalty the price for sin is severe it's separation from God forever that's what we all deserve that's what is the right thing that should happen to all of us because of our rebellion against God, whether we know we're rebelling or, or we don't, because we're doing our own thing. And we're doing what's, what we want to do, but it's actually an offense, a sin against God. And because of who it's against, our Creator who loves us and who's perfectly holy, the penalty is forever. But because God loves us, He sent His one and only Son to show us perfect love in a broken world, to suffer and die for us, not just suffer and die, but in our context, allow Himself to be tortured to death by His own creation in order to pay our penalty for sin. But the way we get that, there's only one way. It always has to be on God's terms. And He's telling us the only way we get Christ's death credited to our account, that we benefit by that, is that we respond to Him in faith. Or maybe a better way to say it today is trust, that we place our trust in Jesus, who He is, the God-man, and what He did that he gave his life on the cross to pay Kevin's sin debt, to pay your sin debt, to pay your sin debt, all of our individual sin debts. When we place our trust in Jesus, then that death is credited to our account. And that's the only way to God. A relationship with Christ through faith. Faith meaning trusting in him alone. It's not religious rituals. It's not where you go to church. 
It's not doing good things. It's not being a great parent. It's not even being a self-sacrificing parent. None of those, that's what we're supposed to do. None of that gives us merit with God. We cannot earn our salvation. It's a gift that God offers us through cost, through suffering, through sacrifice. But we have to accept it through faith. That's what God's telling us. And if the Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago is truly the Son of God, it demands, He demands, that we would respond radically. Denounce Him as a liar, write Him off as unbalanced, or fall at His feet and worship Him. But our response should be radical. Let's stand together for prayer. Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you uh, for what Jesus has done for us. And we recognize, Lord, that really for those of us who have placed our faith in you, that you meet our deepest needs with perfect timing, even when we can't see it. Lord, we know it's true. And we know it's because you're the perfect counselor who knows our every need that you're uniquely perfect in your nature, God and man, and that you teach us what perfect love in a broken world looks like, that it always involves suffering, a cost, a sacrifice. And Father, we pray that knowing there are some of us here who have not made this decision to place their trust in in Jesus and Jesus alone for their salvation. God, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, help them to see, and just cry out in faith to God, asking them for forgiveness based on what Jesus did. God, thanks for loving us like that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.